Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzen, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our desire at Grace Bible Fellowship is to proclaim the Word of God for the glory of God. At the center of our proclamation is the one who is Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. We base who we are and what we do upon the good news of Jesus. If you would like to know more about this good news or would like to know more about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. That's www.gbfperu.org. I'm glad you've decided to listen to the teaching of the Bible along with us as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. invite you to take your copies of the scriptures this morning and took to, uh, turn to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1. In a moment I will read verses 15 through 17. If you're using the Pew Bible this morning, page 991. Maybe not the normal Christmas text, but I pray that it will still encourage us this morning as we think even about what we just sang, sometimes we feel like there is no peace on earth. As the songwriter wrestled with that, there was that hope. The right shall prevail. The darkness does not win. Evil does not win. And that's what we've been talking about in our Advent series, why is it that Jesus had to come into the world? What's the point of his coming? Did he have to come? Was it necessary for him to come? And we have been saying, yes, it's absolutely necessary that Christ has come into this world. So this morning, in your bulletin, you'll find the outline. And to prepare you, we will cover point one this morning as true fashion. So if you need to take extra notes, flip that page over and you can write on the back of that. Uh, Lord willing, next week we will cover the next three. <laughs> but today, perhaps one will be enough. And I pray that it would be so. Would you stand with me as we read God's word this morning? First Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. 
Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we pray for all gathered to hear the word of truth, that our Lord would forgive all transgressions and sins, giving His grace and Spirit through whom we have full understanding of all truth, so that we may handle, expound, and declare, hear, listen to, receive, and keep your holy word in purity and holiness, fulfilling your good will, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Christmas is not about you. It's not about all the things that you have to do, whether it's shopping or various events. It's not about you and all that you're going to give this year. As we are told, it's the season of giving. And yet, how much of Christmas is spent thinking about ourselves? If we think that Christmas is not about you, it's not about me, how many of us might do away with it? Because we only seek to do things that are about us, are centered around us. In our pragmatic world, we discard anything and everything that might not be about me, that might not be about us. Christmas is not about you. It's not about what you want. Not just material things. It's not even about what you want to happen in family get-togethers this year, what you want people to do for you, how you want people to treat you. And I wonder, how will you judge this Christmas season? How will you know if you've had a good Christmas? Did everyone get along? Did I get to do everything that I wanted to do? Did we keep all of the family traditions? Did we make some great memories? Did I get everything I wanted? Did I feel warm and fuzzy like all of the Hallmark Christmas movies tell me I'm supposed to feel? How is it and what is it that will leave you satisfied on December 26th or after the new year? When you look back on the Christmas season of 2019... How will it rate in the line of all the Christmases that you've had throughout your life? Perhaps the secret to enjoying your celebration of Christmas is coming to grips with the fact that Christmas is not about you. Now, maybe at this point you're ready to jump the gun and say, yes, yes, we know, we know, we've heard it all before, Christmas is about Christ. And we have all of those little pithy sayings, catchy phrases like, don't take the Christ out of Christmas, or Jesus is the reason for the season. And being honest, how often I feel that those have become so bland and tasteless. 
And the more we repeat them, the more bland and tasteless they become. They do nothing for me. They spark nothing in me that stirs my soul, captures my heart, that arrests my mind and directs my will. They are like lukewarm water that I want to spit out of my mouth. Why is that? Because Jesus is not a slogan. Jesus isn't a chant that we say over and over again to whip ourselves into a frenzy. Jesus is much, much more than that. And the reason why I would dare say that Christmas is not about you is because the Bible is not about you. What is it about? It's about the one true God saving Adam and Eve by clothing them with animal skins and sending them out of the Garden of Eden. It's about God saving Noah and his family from the flood on an ark. It's about God saving Abraham, calling him out of the Ur of the Chaldeans, promising him descendants, a homeland, and great blessings. It's about how God saved Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah. It's about how God saved Isaac on Mount Moriah when he was about to be sacrificed. It's about how God saved Jacob from Laban, from Esau, and even wrestled with God so that God changed his name to Israel. It's about how God saved Joseph from his brothers, from Potiphar's house, and from the prison in Egypt, and elevated him to Pharaoh's right-hand man where he was able to preserve God's people. It's about how God saved Moses, saved him from the time that he was born to the time that he appeared to him in a burning bush. It's about how God saved Israel from Pharaoh in Egypt. It's about how God saved Israel from her enemies as she made her way through the wilderness into the promised land. It's about how God saved Rahab, the prostitute, in the battle of Jericho. It's about how God saved Joshua as he went throughout the land of Israel. It's about how God saved Israel during the days of the judges. It's about how God saved Israel from the hand of Goliath. It's about how God saved David, Solomon, Hezekiah, Josiah, Esther, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we could go on and on and on. That's just the tip of the iceberg. What is the Bible about? The Bible is about what God has done. About the work, the action of God himself in this world, in space and time, so that his purpose is accomplished. It's about the fact that this God is not only the creator God, this God is not just the transcendent God, this God is not just the holy God, he's not just the all-powerful, all-knowing, and everywhere present God, but this God is the saving God. This is the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. No, the Bible is not fundamentally about you or what you've done or what even you should do. It's about what God has done, what God has accomplished. And so it is with Christmas. Christmas is not about you. It's about what God has done. Christmas is about salvation. That's why Jesus came into the world. That's why God sent his only son into the world. It is that purpose, which is at the very heart, which is the heartbeat that pumps the blood through the rest of the veins of the Bible. And it's even found in the name Jesus. Matthew one twenty one, And you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Luke 2.10 For unto you is born this day in the city of David, what? A Savior, who is Christ the Lord. 
Jesus means Yahweh saves, God saves. Just saying the name of Jesus is to be a reminder of the God who is the saving God. Look at what God has done. Look at how God has saved. This is no action of man. Christmas is not accomplished. Salvation is not accomplished by the manipulation of man, by the action of man, by man causing it to happen. No, it happens because God has done it. And how great is what God has done. And how do you view it? Is it a small thing in your mind that God has done in bringing salvation? Or is it something so big, so amazing, so utterly life-changing that you have to tell others about it? That you have to let them know that it becomes so urgent that you don't want another moment to pass without them knowing about this great work. I love what it says in Psalm 78, verse 4. We will not hide these great works from our children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. Are you telling the glorious deeds of the Lord? Are you relaying the wonders that He has done? How do you know these? I'm not talking just knowing about them. Do you have an intimate knowledge because you've known God's great work of salvation to be in your heart? You know it firsthand. There's a problem in Psalm 78 that I just read, though. These people, the Israelites, have seen all of these great things, all of these great wonders. They have seen and known what God has done to save them, to rescue them, and to redeem them. But then in verse 22, it says this, They did not believe in God and did not trust His saving power. They came to this crossroads. Did they need to be saved by God? And so I pose that question to you, to us today. Are you one who needs to be saved? That's why we've come here together. That's why we come here together every Sunday. We recognize our need. We don't come together just to show how good we are or how religious or pious we are, or how we have it all together, we come because we recognize the desperate need of salvation that we have. We come, with those, we come as those with empty hands, nothing to bring. But we come here because we know God has done it all and gives us what we need. I fear that we could unknowingly fall into some of these same tendencies that the Israelites fell into. To somehow downplay the absolute necessity of our salvation and downplay the great lengths that were necessary to secure salvation for us. It took the Son of God taking on human flesh, being born of a virgin as a baby, humbling himself, coming from the very presence of God into the world in order to save 
I pray this morning that this text will help us marvel at the salvation Christ gives and that it would help us take our eyes off ourselves at Christmas and put them where they're supposed to be on our Savior. So, number one this morning. Jesus came into the world to save, we know that. But Jesus coming to save does something. It magnifies the grace of God. Jesus coming to save magnifies the grace of God. And the way that I'm using this idea of magnification is not like a microscope. I'm not saying that it's taking something small and making it look bigger. It's more like a telescope. Something that's out there in the universe that's very big and very large. And we need help to be able to see it. To see it vast, to see how great it is, to see its magnitude. And so Jesus coming to save magnifies the grace of God. And I'm going to start with that statement, or as Paul calls it, the same. Do you see that there in verse 15? The same, he says, is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. So what is that statement? What is that saying? It's given to us in the second half of the verse. It's this confession. Confession that is at the very heart of what we believe as Christians. It's a confession that has a prominent place in the church and a prominent place in our lives. It's a saying statement that we cannot get around, we cannot get over it. And so while we might think it basic or simple, it's very necessary, very crucial for what we believe. And here it is. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Notice, it is the express purpose of why Jesus came. If I were to ask you why you came here today, there would be a variety of answers. You came because someone invited you. You came before, because it's the Sunday before Christmas and you feel this is where you're supposed to be. You came because someone made you come. You came because you wanted to, you desired to. None of us, though, would walk through those doors and say, I have come here to save you all. The audacity of someone to say that. Who do they think that they are? What gives them the right? We don't need to be saved. We are all right just the way we are. We've got everything under, the, under control. But this is why Jesus came into the world, to save. And it tells us, first, that he has authority to save. He has the right to save. We, as people, do not get to determine who or who doesn't get saved. Or how that salvation is accomplished. It is Christ Jesus, the Messiah, the King, who has the authority to save. But he also has the power and the ability to save. Jesus coming into the world to save does not come on a wing and a prayer. He doesn't come saying, I'll give it my best try to save you. I'll give it my best shot. Let me see what I can do. I'm not going to make any promises. No, Jesus Christ comes with the power and the ability to accomplish salvation. This wasn't an attempt at salvation. He came to save and he does save. He accomplished, fulfilled, did what he said he was going to do. What his name promised God would do, 
Jesus Christ came and came to save, and he did it. But that means that Jesus Christ came to die. That is how salvation is accomplished. We think of Jesus coming at Christmas time, lying in a manger. But it's that baby that was born to die. Die so that people would be saved. Die a death for a purpose. You ever think of how you might like to die? How many of us say, well, I would just like to die in my sleep. Go peacefully. Jesus Christ came to die on a cross. The most uncomfortable, horrific, torturous death you could imagine. Jesus came to save and to die for a purpose that no one would wish for. To die a death that ends on a cross. But that is how salvation is accomplished. That is how redemption happens. That is how the rescue of mankind takes place. The the salvation that we desperately needed. Jesus Christ came to save, but he came to die on a cross. And he came to save sinners. It's that express category that Christ came to save Jesus Christ came to save sinners because sinners need to be saved. It's sinners who must be saved if there's to be any hope. Listen to what Jesus says as he goes throughout his ministry here on earth. Mark 2.17 Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Luke 15, 7, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Matthew 9, 13, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Luke 19, 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Who does Jesus come to call? Who does Jesus come to seek and to save? It's sinners. If you think, if you've come this morning and you think that you are a righteous person on your own, if you think that you are a pretty good person, if you think that all of your good outweighs your bad so that you're okay with God, if you think that there's no need for repentance in your life, if you think you have no need to be found because you're not lost, Jesus didn't come to save you. In fact, when Jesus said these things that I just read, he said them to Pharisees, those who were seen as the most religious 
those who were seen as the holiest, most pious of all people. But Jesus said it to threaten their way of life, the way that they thought about themselves. He said this because they had bought into a lie, that they were good enough for God. Through all of these outward and external actions that they did for God, they were blinded by their sin and did not see that what they really needed was a new heart. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Who are those? Sinners are those who have missed the mark. They do not honor God or give thanks to Him. Sinners are, as the Bible describes it, they are ungodly. They go against God and His ways. Sinners are enemies of God. They are alienated from God, hostile in mind towards God. Sinners live for themselves in their own pride and selfishness. Sinners are those dominated by their sin, enslaved by their sin, burdened by their sin. Who are sinners? Everyone is a sinner. Romans 3, 10 and 11. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. Then verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The fact that Christ Jesus came to save sinners is meant to humble us. Who are you? You are either a sinner who needs to be saved, or you are a sinner who has been saved, is being saved, and will be saved. And that must come with a certain recognition. You cannot save yourself. Only Christ's death and resurrection accomplishes salvation. Jesus bore our sin in his body. He took our sin. He paid the penalty, took the punishment, bore the wrath of God. That was the just and right and true consequence for what we deserve, for what I deserve for my sin. Christ died for my sin. Christ's death did not merely make salvation possible. His hanging, nailed to a cross, was actually the act of salvation. And it is that action, that work, the work of Christ on the cross that saves. It's the work that is applied to sinners so that they are saved. And it's the work that we are called to respond to you. Do you believe in that work? Do you trust in his work? Is that what you depend upon for your salvation? And do you see that as a sinner, you absolutely do not deserve his saving work? A sinner rightly deserves eternal punishment because we've sinned against an infinitely holy God. This comes to that intersection now of we've read this confession. Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners, but now Paul interjects his own personal confession, doesn't he? Something about himself. And Paul says this, of whom I am the foremost. That is Paul saying, I am the first 
of sinners. I am the chief of sinners. I am the worst of sinners. Who would stand up and say that? You would have to be out of your mind, wouldn't you? Well, we might say, yeah, I sin, but I'm not as bad as that other person. My life isn't a mess like that other person's life. I'm doing okay compared to other people. We might say we have a little bit of sin, but who is willing to admit, yeah, I'm first? When it comes to sinning, I am the winner. And we look at Paul's life, we are amazed by it. We even know his own testimony. A few verses earlier here, verse 13, Paul says, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Paul was a man who used to persecute Christians. He sought to bring an inquisition upon them, arrest them, lock them up with the hopes and the intent that they might be put to death, eradicated, extinguished off of the face of the earth. But notice what Paul says. Look at that phrase again. Of whom I am the foremost. Notice what it says. Paul does not say, I was the worst sinner. He does not say, I used to be a really bad person. It is not only that his past where the sin was, as if to say, I used to be a sinner, but I I no longer sin. I found perfection. I no longer sin anymore. No, look at how he puts it in the present, of whom I am the foremost. When Paul looks at his life, there is no doubt that he is a sinner. Not just in the past. It's almost like there's a hall of fame for sinners and Paul says, I hold the title, I am at top. I am the worst of sinners. And Paul knew himself as a sinner because the work of salvation that Christ had done in his life. The fact that when he met the risen Christ, when Christ confronted him on that road to Damascus, he knew, and he knew without a shadow of a doubt, that not only was he confronted with the glorious Christ, he was confronted with the odiousness, the heinousness, and the stench of his own sinful heart. And there may be a point of crossover here as we read about Paul. So much so that something resonates in our own hearts. And it's this, living in Christ's light, that we know, that I can say, There's no worse sinner that I know of than myself. When I look at my life and my heart through the lens of Christ, through the lens of God's word, it reveals about me and says about me and the truth about me and my deceiving sinful heart is this. There is no worse sinner that I know of than myself. I am the foremost of sinners. So then, we're able to say with Paul, there is no one so undeserving of such great a salvation as me. 
Not only am I undeserving, I've actually done everything I could not to deserve it as a sinner. I'm not just in a neutral place. I'm not Switzerland. I've fought against deserving it as a sinner. There is no one that I know who deserves salvation less than me. But when you trust in Christ's work and you believe in him, when you begin to turn from your sin, repent of your sin, you no longer get what you deserve. You receive what you don't deserve. You get the grace of God. You get his unmerited favor. You get salvation. You get forgiveness. You get a new heart. You get Christ's righteousness. You get joy and hope and God's steadfast love. You get eternal life and all of those as a gift And you begin to understand what Peter describes in 1 Peter 1, verses 8 through 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Have you experienced inexpressible joy? How I fear sometimes as Christians, we believe in non-expressible joy. Like, I don't want to express anything. Is it joy in your heart, in your life, because of what God has done to save you and me, the worst sinner that you know? And Paul and Peter says that's to be inexpressible joy. Like if you have kids, you've maybe seen this before. Maybe you've even known this before. There's something that you want for Christmas and you want it bad. And the child gets that gift. They open it up and they see what's inside. And all of a sudden, it's, they don't know what to say. They're so excited. It's better than they thought. It's better than they knew. It's like they're shaking and trembling with joy. They can't even express it. They can't even get the words out of their mouth. That kind of, is that the kind of joy that you know from this great salvation that God has given you? I can try to express it. I want to express it. But there's part of me that can't express how much joy is in me because it is inexpressible joy. That is what happens when God's grace comes into your life. Would you explain it the way that Paul explains it, even in 1 Timothy verse 14 of chapter 1? The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Did you hear it? Paul had experienced the saving power of grace in his life, and he says it overflowed for him with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul could not and did not get over the magnitude of God's grace that overflowed to him. And that's not only Paul's testimony. That's the testimony of every believer. That you've known the overflow 
of the grace of the Lord in your life. It's enveloped you. It's surrounded you. That the grace of God has so captured you that you know the faith and you know the love that are in Christ Jesus. And that's because you know that Christ Jesus came in this wor- into this world to save sinners, the worst of sinners, the chief of sinners, the first of sinners, a sinner like you. A sinner like you who was helpless and hopeless, alone in this dark world, as one who was dead in your trespasses and sins, held captive by your own sin. One who has been blinded by the God of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself. Jesus Christ came to save sinners by dying for them in their place as their substitute, bearing the punishment for sin, receiving the full force of God's wrath upon himself so that you would not know a drop of it, but so that you would be saved. And so that all that you would know is the saving power of God's miraculous, supernatural, overflowing grace in your life. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. What's Paul's boast in this verse? I'm the foremost of sinners. I am the first. I have nothing. I've done nothing. I deserve nothing. But I have been given Christ, so I have everything. This is precisely the good news that we need to hear this Christmas. We know that Christmas is not about us, but is about the salvation and the gospel that comes through the incarnation of Jesus Christ, where Jesus came into this world. It's what we are here rejoicing in this morning and what we rejoice in every day. The good news that God offers salvation to all people, not based upon their greatness, but based upon His grace. Jesus Christ coming to save magnifies the grace of God. He shows God's grace in all of its magnificence, all of its majesty, all of its splendor, and all of its glory so that we are overwhelmed by it. And today could be the very first day that you are seeing a glimpse of how great of a salvation that is in Jesus Christ. Today could be the very first day that you see yourself as the foremost sinner, that you have been raging against God, denying him, rejecting him, going against him and living for yourself but when you see the price of salvation that God did not spare his own son but gave him up for us that Jesus died on the cross bearing the sin of sinful men that you see that you need salvation and he is offering that to you today You need the salvation that he alone accomplished. Today is the day to put your full faith and trust in the finished work of the cross. The only work that can save you from your sins. And give you the forgiveness that you so desperately, so desperately need before the holy God. It's the day to turn from your sin. It's not a life of perfection, but it's seeking to forsake your sin and give your life to Christ so that he becomes your greatest desire, your greatest treasure, and so that you now want to live your life for him. If you need to do that today, if you need to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ because you never have, talk to me today. Don't leave this place without talking to a Christian. 
let that grace, God's grace, amazing grace, overflow in your life. Let me tell you something. You will not be disappointed. (laughs) You will not be left empty by God. There was a pastor who had the chance to meet with uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones' daughter. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a past- Jones was a pastor in England in the mid-20th uh, century. And this pastor asked his daughter, after he had passed away, how is it, how is it that your father pastored so long, ministered so long the way that he did, preached in the same place for as long as he did? Here's what, his daughter said about him. I don't think he ever got over his salvation. He never stopped being surprised by it. Have you gotten over your salvation? Are you no longer surprised by it? I hope And I pray that you never will. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would take the truth from your word and plant it deep in us this morning. That we would hold on to this grace that's overflowed into our lives. And that we would see just how magnificent it is in the light of what our Savior has done for us. Father, do that work in our hearts that only you can do this morning. There's a work of salvation that needs to be done. We pray that you would do that work today. That someone would see their desperation, their desperation, their need, and that they would call out to you. That they would say, I can I no longer try to live for myself, no longer try to do it on my own. That they would stop trying to save themselves and say, the only way I could be saved is by putting my faith in what Christ has done to save me. And Lord, I pray that that would happen here this morning. I pray for those of us who have been saved, Lord, that we would see it's not because we deserve it. It's not because of anything that we've done. And Lord, I pray that we will never get over it. That we will never stop being surprised by it. Because we know just how much Christ has done for us. Give us this inexpressible joy, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.